The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your hosts, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. We're very close to being killed. The mob has actually got into the compound. They brought down the gates, went inside, and the tradition was immediately they gain access into the compound. Then they go room by room, bring out people, and then get them slaughtered. Tertiary education wasn't something everybody tried to have in the northern part of the country then. I was actually learning uh, how to repair generators, um, small generators and big generators for the big men in Kano. I was actually the first person in my family in Kano then that would go to university. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. One of the things we do at Starter is growth consulting. We work with select number of growth stage startups and established companies to grow and retain their customers. We do growth. We're not a digital marketing agency. Instead, we help our clients figure out their customer acquisition and retention by focusing on three major things. We help them build a consistent narrative and community around their core offers. Second, we help them build a scalable, repeatable, and cost-effective growth systems and strategies. And lastly, most importantly, we help them build an in-house team that we execute the strategies for them. We've worked with and still working with companies like Flutterwave, Cranium One, DIY Law, Omar Gardens, JEE Client Services, Amara Suit, and many others. We're a small team of startup entrepreneurs, investors, product designers, and growth marketers with experiences of building and scaling our own products companies to work with you we'll have to determine if there's a fit and if we can significantly make a difference to your growth trajectory within a short time if your business is currently making money at least ten thousand dollars per month and you want to scale to the next level let's have a chat go to we and book a free strategy session with us that is w-e-d-o-g-r-o-w-t-h co we do growth.co and book a free strategy session with us today my guest today is razak hamed razak is the co-founder and ceo of kauri wise kauri wise is a platform that makes it simple and seamless for everyone in nigeria to save and invest the way I network individuals do. I use the platform to save my Naira. Razak has one of the most interesting stories I've heard in the Nigerian startup ecosystem. His family narrowly escaped death during conflicts in the northern part of Nigeria. They relocated to the south and that gave him the opportunity to go to university, something he wouldn't have been inspired to do if they had stayed in the north. He graduated with a first class in economics, worked as an investment banker, and then started his own firm. In this episode, he shared the vision behind Kauriwa why he started it and how it will democratize investment opportunities for the common people in the country. I would like to say a big thank you to my friend Feiyi Fawaemi who introduced me to Razak. Without Feiyi, this episode wouldn't have happened. 
Razak, welcome to Building the Future. Your story is super interesting. And I want to start from the beginning, how you grew up in Kano, northern Nigeria, and the fact that you were not exposed to the university education and it wasn't part of your vision or dream or plan to go to university and how that shaped your early stage life and you now found yourself in a university later and how came up with the first class let's start with that okay thank you Dotun. uh it's quite interesting um having the opportunity to share my story um my parents were living in kano uh they actually got married in kano the all of my siblings were actually given birth to in kano so naturally i grew up in kano spending about 14 years of my life um it was the norm nothing so strange about an average kid in kano state northern part of nigeria not having the perception of going to higher institution that sharing education wasn't so something everybody strive to have in the northern part of the country then traditionally young kids go to primary school complete primary school and then go to secondary school but almost 80 90 percent of the kids usually combine academic studies with some form of other works like manual works and so on and so forth so in my case it was my uncle actually who introduced me to uh, the mechanic job i was actually learning uh, how to repair generators um small generators and big generators for the big men in Kano. And I spent close to four years doing that. And I Were you doing that while you were still in the secondary school? Yes, I was doing that while I was still in secondary school. So the usual pattern is uh, after school, when you close in school by two, three, then you resume at the mechanic workshop. And the plan was that when you finish the secondary school, you have a job, you have a vocation you can then go into. Correct. So what was going through your mind at that point when you were in secondary school and learning how to be a mechanic? It wasn't out of place, right? It wasn't. I think it's about what you see around you is about the environment what shapes your thinking what shapes your mentality and at that point you see your elders you see your friends everybody was just doing the same thing so you aren't seeing it as hot so if you are not doing it you'll be seen as doing something strange so uh the usual pattern is after school everybody gets home and from home everybody goes to the vocation they've chosen some do mechanics some do carpentry all sorts so if you're at home after school it's as if you are you're useless let me put it that way so it wasn't something strange and i'm not sure that has actually changed materially at this point so um th that was the norm and the expectation was very simple the expectation was spend a couple of years doing this and then you do the ceremonial uh, freedom and after freedom you have your own workshop and then life continues and the people you look up to are in the vocation so you're looking up to them as mentors you're looking up to them as elders and you're looking up to them as successful people so the definition of success is quite different then from what is the definition of success? Because the framework you're using is quite different because you've seen some people who have learned those kind of trades and they become the peak of their career. And the career, what you're seeing is, okay, they are able to have a house, they are able to maybe have a family and then do some stuff for themselves. And so you can then see that, okay, if I work hard, I can be like X who has maybe a car or has a house and have wife and family. So your expectation is totally different. Correct. The expectation is different. The benchmark were different. So the benchmarks wasn't uh, you want to have a PhD or you want to have a degree because you are not even very close to higher institutions. The closest educational institution you have around you is primary school or secondary school education. Though there is very university canal but it's further into the interior so you actually don't have access to being influenced by uh, undergraduate student or postgraduate students which actually forms an important part of what shapes the minds of young people. Did you have anybody in the family who's going to University that you can see at that time. 
Well, at that point, no. I was actually the first person in my immediate and um, extended family in Kano then that would go to university. Though I had a distance uncle who used to be in Obafemi Aolo University as a lecturer. Uh, but while I was in Kano, I actually got to Gumosho just once. My village. Oh, I won't say village. Your hometown. My hometown. I actually got there just once. So if... And you met him? No. Of course, I didn't. You, well, you just heard of him. I just heard of him. That's um, he lectures in um, Obafemi Aloe. Because I remember when I was growing up, and both of my parents didn't go to university either, but they have huge respect for university. So I remember they would talk about some of my uncles or distant uncles that is a lecturer. And I remember that is like a with reverence that is we think oh, i want to be like the way they talk about this person one of my uncle he wasn't a lecturer um he had a phd it's my mom's uncle so distant uncle and i remember my mom took me to his office once and he was by that time i think it was a permanent secretary in the federal ministry so at the peak of his career and his office was this huge expanse office with a dining table and a lounge and about two or three telephones and one direct to the president you know, a military regime then and it was in a cabinet office and stuff and it was just amazing and I remember having a conversation with my mom saying he's a doctor but he doesn't have an hospital I said no he's a different kind of doctor he has a PhD and um, that's the highest qualification you can have in education and I remember, wow and I, my mind was a wow I would like to have that kind of stuff because he had so much respect in the family so you didn't have that kind of close proximity to someone that they have so much respect for because of their education not at all not at all um i think the perception then was never to think of coming back to the southwest i think coming back to the southwest was too accidental and the accident actually became quite instrumental, to, instrumental to changing the course of my life so uh while we're in kano it was in 1999 during the uh kano crisis kano crisis erupted i just came back from school usually after school um we'll get prepared to go to our various workshops and then the usual running around started we're used to it actually people started running around and usually it take probably a day or two everything will go down and life continues but unfortunately that incident didn't go as usual and before we knew it it erupted into something quite unusual and um, we're quite lucky to have escaped the crisis because a lot of people we knew actually died from so it. this was a religious crisis people beating and killing each other based on religion no, it wasn't religious crisis. Uh, we experienced religious crisis in 91. Then I was in Sabongere, very young kid. And I could remember that vividly. People getting killed and so on and so forth. The 1999 crisis was actually a crisis between Hausa and Yoruba. So it was a tribal crisis. It was actually as a result of um, some Hausa people getting killed in Songo, Ota, and then their calls were brought to Kano. And then it was the reaction uh, of that that resulted into um, Hausa people you know, reacting, killing Yoruba people and, and so these so were people rising up against their neighbors and colleagues and business partners because of their tribe and killing them exactly um that doesn't mean everybody did that but again when you are dealing with mob it's actually very difficult to control so um the nature of the northern part of the country is you have a lot of youth a lot of young people who can easily be influenced uh, to carry out certain actions that ordinarily society will frown out right so uh it was in that situation that we found ourselves 
who were very close to being killed. Uh, I'll say that. When the whole thing started, we were indoors. And um, the mob has actually got into the compound. They brought down the gates, were inside. And the tradition was immediately they gain access into the compound. Then they go room by room, bring out people, and then get them slaughtered. And they ask whether you are Yoruba or they know. They actually know the buildings where Yorubas are, the buildings where their houses are. So it is a case of targeted attacks because you're actually living among the indigents. So uh, everybody knows everybody. And when the crisis started, it was a case of targeted attacks against particular tribes. So there are houses that are primarily lived uh, by the non-indigenous and so on and so forth. So um, we're close to being attacked and then we're very lucky to have the Nigerian army uh, come around to rescue us. Wow. So they gain access to your compound. And where were you? Were you with your parents? Yeah, we are all together. My dad, my mom and my siblings were all indoors and um, if the Nigerian army... Had, what were you doing when you knew that they were We're access? just praying. You were praying and hoping, <laughs> hoping that something magical will happen. Because you've seen other people being killed. Correct. And how old were you then? I was fourteen. Fourteen with your parents yeah. in the room and knowing that this could be our last day. Correct. What was going through your mind? Well, all sort of fear, anxiety. You know, it was. I can't explain it, but um, hearing the gunshot of the Nigerian army in the neighborhood actually brought some relief. If the Nigerian army had waited for few more minutes before they actually arrived, probably I won't be here sitting with you this evening. So uh, when they came around with their vehicles, then they actually evacuated all of us to the barracks. That's Bukavu Barracks Canoe. And that was my first experience with what an IDP actually looks like. It was it was terrible. IDP, Internally Displaced People's Camp. Camp, <laughs> yeah. So it was quite terrible. So we spent quite uh, some days there. Like So you had to leave your house, leave everything. Everything. So the military came, they were shooting in the air. They were shooting those people. No, shooting in the air. Shooting in the air. So, so that those they people can, can disperse and then they can evacuate. And and then you, when you heard a gunshot, you knew that the military... Was yeah. Around. So the major feature then was those people weren't carrying guns as we have it today. So it wasn't the gun-carrying era. They were just mob. Mobs, with you know, cutlasses. cutlasses and so on and so forth. So hearing gun was an indication that the military were actually around. So it was a sign of relief for us. And so we moved to the Bukavu, moved to Bukavu Barakano, uh, which is where my secondary school is actually is. Uh, I'm in the secondary school. And we spent a few days there, um, you know, practically begging for food here and there because you actually never planned for that. So I spent a few days and from barracks we landed in my hometown of Gomashu. So your dad just decided that let's go back to our home hometown. Yeah, because we actually survived two crises earlier. 1991 and 1995. So it was like this should be the last because we got very close to being killed. So he left everything he was doing? Everything. And he just packed you in the car and then went back home back. and started a new life. Correct. So that new life... um even though it was a big, sounds like a tragedy uh, change in, in the course of the story for your dad, what became the platform that changed your own life for the better? Yeah, sometimes when bad things happen or tragic events happen, we never actually can tell what is on the other side of the table for us. So uh, when we got to my hometown, that would be the second time I'll be in Ogumasho, and um, we're staying at... Uh, one of my family's house, extended family, um, that's in Isale, they call it Isale General. It's actually very close to Lautec. And um, Lautec is a university. Laduke Akintola University in, in Ogomosha. And um, everywhere in your environment, you see undergraduate students, you know, carrying books, going to classes, reading. Sometimes you see post secondary school students seeking admission but reading for jam, you know, and so on and so forth. And you kept wondering what's happening in this environment. So you found yourself in a university town. Correct. And you found people getting other motivations apart from doing mechanics. Correct. Or learning a trade. Trade. 
And what is about this old studying and going to going university? To so that, that actually changed my entire uh, mentality about what I wanted to do. Because uh, there was an instance where the house we were living, there were actually students there who were studying for JAMB. And I was actually SS1 trying to go to SS2 at that point. And JAMB is the university entrance examination. Examination, yeah. And um, I got in contact with some of them, trying to see the materials they were, you know, reading for the maths, agric, English, and so on. And I, I realized I could actually do some of these things right from my SS1, SS2, SS2 to SS2 days. How? And because the curriculum is not exposing you to those things. Yet. It's not. Yeah, but how are, did you get to know that? There you are commonalities. Um, for example, right from my SS1, SS2, um, I have actually been an above average student right from then. From a primary school, I was the head boy. Let me put it that way. I was the head boy for, for my, in my primary school. And in my secondary school, I was top of my class as well. But being the top of your class doesn't necessarily mean you have the vision of going to university is just well among this you know this set of students you, you are the top so you found studying easy exactly i found it quite easy and i find it very easy to do and i find it like a self-help without being taught i get to know so many things and so getting to see what those students were actually studying for cost is sparking me that i can actually do some of these things that these guys were preparing for and that was actually the journey and um i joined uh i didn't remember grammar school ss2 and then the journey began. And my first exam was actually jump. Before writing why I actually wrote jump. And um, then I scored a 215. Out of 400. Out of 400. So then uh, that was the year before 300 was the norm. Uh, then 280, 290 was like the yeah. highest. Yes, uh, that's a high mark. High I, mark. I, I scored 215 and I got to University of Lagos. Lagos, wow. <laughs> so I scored 215. I actually chose University of Illinois, which was actually close to um, uh, Ogoma Shodan. I couldn't choose Lautech because Lautech is primarily a technology university. And my secondary school, I was in between Hart and Commercial, which was actually very strange. We're just two in the entire secondary school that were combining art and commercial studies. So I was doing um, geography and I wasn't doing literature. I wasn't doing accounting, but I was doing government. So I actually straddled between pure arts and commercial class. So sometimes when you have some subject being taught in art class, I'll leave the class, go to commercial class. So I wasn't defined like this is my class. Did you choose that yourself? Or it what? was because of what I started from in Kano. Yeah, so uh, it was difficult for me to find myself aligned to a particular class when I got to Ogumosha. So I just decided to pick, it was just by instinct, I just decided to pick those subjects and I was combining the two classes. So um, so after that, I chose University of Illinois as my first choice and second choice. It was actually very wide. I usually choose the same school first choice, the same school second choice, the same course first choice, the same course second choice. What was the course that you chose? I chose business admin. And that's what you think you wanted to do? Wanted to do, yeah, sure. I chose business admin. But unfortunately, in Lawrence said the cut of man was 234, so I was denied. I felt very bad um, because I wasn't very used to rejection. So I felt I was being rejected. You scored what? 215. And the cutoff was 234? 235. 235. Yeah. So after that, um, did work. After that, yeah, the, the result was fantastic. I actually had the best results in the entire school then. And then... Yeah, it was quite funny. We're just two of us that had credit in English. <laughs> in your <secondary laughs> in my school, <laughs> in my secondary school. So it was quite an experience, you know, being the focus of 
so many teachers and so on and so forth. So after that, I retook my jump and then decided to shun University of Illinois and then chose OAU. Uh, first choice OAU, second choice OAU, first choice economics, second choice economics. Then I scored a 278, no, 274, 275. I scored 275 and the cutoff mark was 274. Uh, just one mark high. just one mark high above the cut of mark and i'd never been to OAU before i only read about okay there is a school called OAU and, and so on and so fantastic school here and there so i chose that on on that merit and i actually got to know that i was admitted online so i'd never been to OAU, and that's one major thing i gave to that school as as we can point to so many defects in the Nigerian educational system there's still some spark of quality here and there maybe not as much as we would like to see them but there's still some sparks of quality here and there so um oh you give me the admission and then my university journey began so you went to oau yeah you studied economics economics you changed your environment totally correct from kano to Ogumashan university town but oau was a different ball game because you're now living on campus yeah. with people from different parts Backgrounds, of the country yeah. how did that shape your thinking the, the beauty about eferi is um it is actually a melting point of many people. They reach the poor, Igbo, Hausa, Yoruba. Uh, well, dominantly Yoruba, but you still have a lot of other tribal people there. So, Hausa is an egalitarian society. It doesn't matter where you are from. So long as you are on campus, everybody is equal. And that equality actually shapes the kind of behavior you elicit, how you interact with your colleagues. So, because there are no boundaries. You don't care whether this guy is the president's son or is the minister's son or you are a son of a farmer. You all relate equally. You all live in the same environment. So, that egalitarianism actually shapes how you interact with people and brings out the best in you. So, that is actually the story in Ife. So, um, when you get to Ife, you leave your background at the gates. And then you live the Ife life. And that life actually allows the students overall the freedom to explore their creative talents, to do so many things that ordinarily are not even in the curriculum of the university. And that's why you see a lot of Nigerian university students, not just in Ife, you can see pockets of this in some other federal universities and private universities. Students doing things that ordinarily you wouldn't have thought they would do. Things outside their normal education and curriculum. Be- because which is actually what education should look like. It's true because university is supposed to be the microcosm of an educated society where people come in and express themselves both creatively, intellectually, socially, and apart from learning in a structured format. So I used to tell people that some, your degree might not be what would make you to be successful, mm. but your university education, not just the certificate, but the idea and the process of going to university, engaging intellectually with other people that is far away from you independently not with your parents but independently engaging intellectually socially uh, even politically helps you to be able to find yourself as a young adult say okay this is what i really am this is what i can do these are my limits these are my boundaries this is what i really want to explore in life and you found that in the rest of Ife, right correct and i think it's also um we're a bit diverging here a bit of a commentary on some private university in nigeria would try to control the life of students Mm. as if they were in secondary school and make them go through some regimented life mm. and i think they're robbing them of that independence of thought and living and experimenting as a university student yeah i think there are good arguments for both cases as you will know there is danger in freedom right uh, as much as freedom is fantastic for the young mind to explore and to germinate there is also the need to contain excessive freedom from going above board right so 
even though I'm not in the uh, class of those who will advocate for excessive control as we have them in some private universities, I think students should be allowed to explore their creative minds uh, to some extent, to a greater extent actually. I really don't see why there should be excessive control. There should be some form of control, maybe a middle road between what currently exists in public universities and what currently exists in the private university. I think the private universities, some private universities in Nigeria are excessively controlled and some most public universities are excessively free. But you can argue that university is supposed to be under the law and, and the norms of society, right? So yeah, okay. So what I mean by... Adults, so yeah. There should be the law and the regulation of the university because when they finish university, they will be part of the society. They will be part of the society Correct. which is regulated. So they should have a feel of what that society looks yes. like earlier on in life. Yes. That's what I'm saying that um, freedom is fantastic. And frankly speaking, I do not regret a bit of what I experienced in effect. I think an average person should have that experience, that freedom to explore. There will be mistakes along the way. It's part of life, right? There's consequence to every, to every action. So, for example, I don't think it is right for university to say that students, when they come to university, they must wake up at a certain time and come to class at a certain time. I think that's and wrong because, from my perspective. Because if you miss classes in university, you're you going to know fail. the consequences. There's a consequence because that is how life is. You know, nobody is going to wake you up in the morning to go to work. But you know you have to go to work because if you don't go to work, there are consequences. Okay, so why I said there are arguments for and against both cases is this. We are in a society where what we do is a function of what other people want. If people still demand those private university education, it means there are people who love what they do. So we can actually go against that. If people don't actually love what they do, then there shouldn't be anyone in those private universities, as we speak. Or but they you are say their parents. Their parents would do. Maybe against the, the wheels of the children. <laughs> school fees is the one that So it's actually it. a very complex societal issue, yes. right? Uh, so uh, in Africa, in Nigeria, for example, um, most parents will give some conditions and advice on what their children should do, which is actually what happened to me, for example. The best my parents knew was, okay, go to primary, go to secondary school, and then you go do X after secondary school, which is actually very similar to what happens when a parent say, go to a private university that is actually against what you wish for. There are some students who like it, so I think we shouldn't um, relegate that. But, but by the way, those, some of those universities are now one of the top and Correct. best universities in, in terms of the quality, quality of, of students they drop. so as i said there are positive arguments for and against both sides of the divide but again it's about what the society wants it's about what people want we can't all be the same we can't all like the same thing we can't all you know have the same kind of vision the most important thing is everything we do we should at least give some sense of freedom to the young mind so let's go about the time at buffalo university in ife where uh, you are involved in a entrepreneur club and yeah. that changed a lot of your perspective and, and what you got involved in later okay so um in ife why we joined it was actually a struggle um you know attending classes meeting new people and sometimes getting some early inferiority complex because you're meeting with a lot of people but at the end of the day you get over that because of what the environment actually provided right but again um in my hundred level the first result i saw was actually a result from philosophy class and um, I wasn't actually expecting to have an A, but I saw the result and I got an A and I was, it sparked some kind of drive in me that, okay, I could actually get A in, in a philosophy class. The philosophy class was actually taken by Dr. Deepo Fashino, Jingo. I don't know if you know. Who is Jingo? Jingo, Jingo. Well, we call him Jingo. Dr. Deepo Fashino. He used to be the former chairman of ASO. So he's actually... Uh, 
or in, in the forefront of the struggle to ensure Nigerian university gets the rights for allocation from, from the MG. Um, so that actually sparked some drive that if I could get A in Dr. Dipo's fashionous course, then what stopped me from getting A from other lecturers' courses? And the journey started. So I was actually focused on academics from my part one to part three fully. So it was fully academics. However, the best experience I had in IFE was actually outside the classroom. So you didn't do extracurricular club uh, activity from year one to year three? No. You were just focused on well, so I was more or less like a unidirectional student, <laughs> you know. Um, so I didn't have a lot of social life growing up. So it wasn't actually very strange, right? But again, in 300 level, I joined a club called Student and Free Enterprise. Um, our president then was um, Suraj Oyewale. He was Student for Enterprise. Student in Free Enterprise. Student in Free Enterprise. enterprise. So it's called SAIF. And um, today, the club's name has been changed to Enactus. So it's a global organization, non-profit organization, uh, made up of students club from across universities in the world and they actually compete on entrepreneurial ground coming up with entrepreneurial projects you know and presenting the impact those projects have created within their local community so team of judges and the judges will judge which team actually comes the best in terms of creating economic impacts to the lowly class people. So uh, we started and um, we participated in the 2000 and 2006 um, edition. Um, we came to Lagos to represent OAU and uh, we actually defeated. And um, You were defeated? We were defeated in 2006. So I was a presenter. Uh, our president was um, Suraj Oyewale. He was a senior colleague who I have a lot of respect for. Um, we did a great job, no doubts at least by our own benchmarks. But again, other you're, teams did you're better. You were presenting a project that you think would be a business that will have impact on people's lives. Yeah, in so, yeah. In so, Africa. so the, the way it works is you carry out projects for about four or five months. You go into rural community, you have a target group, you carry out an economic empowerment project and you evaluate the impact of that project and present the project to a team of judges who then evaluate your project against other projects and I judge which project has the highest impact in terms of economic upliftment of the target audience. So we did that. Uh, we actually did a lot of innovative projects in our thinking that we felt should wow the judges. But of course, other teams did better. So um, we came third in 2006. And right from the time we left Lagos, going back to IFE, we started planning for the next year, which is actually what gave me that insight that if you actually want to do something a year, two years from now, you can actually start right now because it's about the compounding impact, compounding impact of every effort you put in. So right from our departure of Lagos in 2006, we started preparing for 2007. And lo and behold, in 2007, we won the national championship. Uh, so we represented Nigeria in 2007, and um, that was in New York. We presented four projects, and out of about 35 countries that participated in York, um, United States came first. Well, I don't know, maybe it was a home advantage, but obviously they had better projects than us. Then um, Canada came second, and uh, we came third. That's amazing. Yeah. Nigeria so this is third. somebody who would have been a mechanic in northern Nigeria, <laughs> Canada, now representing Nigeria as a student in New York, and coming third out of about 35 countries Correct. all over the world. Yeah. How did that moment feel for you? Yeah, we felt on top of the world, actually. I mean, you personally. I was the president, so the project was actually a teamwork. Um, the team was made up of about 50 students. But of course, as with every other team or every other company, you can have 50 team members, but few people will actually do the work, right? So out of 50 students, we have probably like half of us actually doing the real work. 
So how many people went to New York? About seven of us plus the faculty advisor. So we have two faculty advisors, Dr. Shwaibu and uh, Dr. Adedokum. He, he was a minister then, but now he's, he's a doctor, both of them. So when you got that third prize, personally, did you have time to reflect and see how far you've come? You see, um, it looks like I've spent like 10 years from my departure in Kano to that moment, right? It looks like a long time and everything happened within five, six years. And that actually showed me that so many things can change the life course of an average person if you're actually in the right environments and you put in the right efforts to the right venture. Um, well, that was actually the first time I'll be flying. <laughs> Going to New York was the first time I'll be flying. Uh, so it was a totally different experience. It was elevating. It was encouraging. It was just that wow moment that you can actually do anything you put your mind at doing. So that made you to think that I can achieve I can do anything, anything. Anything. So long as you put in the right. And effort. how did that change your course, um, your course of thinking post-university? Okay, so um, in 2007, after we came back, um, we are almost graduating. So it was like, this is the final lap of our university experience. And we actually finished on a high note. And so in 400 level, 300 level, 400 level, my years in 400 level and 300 level were actually devoted to student and free enterprise. Right, so I was having my academic and so on and so forth. And at the end of the day, I attended an event, um, one of the graduating student events, and I met with Said Bashir. Uh, it was our senior. He graduated when we came in. When we were under level, he graduated. In, that, that means it was like three years ahead of us. And so he came around to deliver a lecture. And during the lecture, I met with him. He gave me his card. Okay, he said he was working with Maristem. I would like to work with them. I said, okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll think about it. And that was around December. We actually finished our exam in December. So I spent January, February, March on campus having that nostalgic feeling that you're living the university world and so on and so forth so he gave me the his card i should contact him when i get to lagos so my next destination from ife was lagos even though i didn't know anyone in lagos i just came to lagos and i was staying with uh, my brother my brother was in lagos he also moved from kano to lagos so i was staying with him there so i i'm Checked out with Said Bashir. I called him. Okay, I'm in Lagos. <laughs> I'm back in Lagos. I've already left you fair. He said I should come around. So I went to Maristem Securities for an interview. That was actually my first ever interview after school. And the interview went well. I was given a job before NYC. I started as a research analyst with Maristem Securities. And um, yeah, the investment banking experience started. So it was actually probably the most impactful post-university experience I've had because I was actually thrown in the middle of the ocean to swim, right? So it was quite, quite value-adding, you know, given a lot of responsibilities at a very young age to handle. And I learned a lot. So it was one of the most productive engagements I've had being a research analyst while I, while I was in Maristam. So I was there for about uh, from March 2008 to around August 2010, post-NYC. So, so you started working with them during the NYC yeah. as well. And you grew in that career quickly? Quickly, yeah. So uh, before I left Maristem, I actually grew to become the head of research for Maristem Security. So um, Said Bashir was the head of research when we joined. So he mentored us, tutored us, and so on and so forth. And he left the unit for another unit where I took over from him. Uh, so it was quite an experience, you know, representing the company on so many levels at a very young age so well um 
I spent less than two years and then I left for Vetiva. Uh, Vetiva Capital Management. I spent about just three months in Vetiva Capital Management. What is the business model of all of these companies that you're working for? Okay, so they are investment management firms. They are uh, Most of them are groups. Um, they do equity trading. Um, so they have security business. They have a trust business. When you say security business, what is that? Uh, selling shares for individuals, selling and buying of shares for individuals, selling and buying of shares for high net worth individuals and corporate. So they manage corporate accounts, they manage individuals' accounts when you want to buy securities, either shares or fixed income instruments and so on and so forth. So I was working as an investment analyst, analyzing all these securities and providing recommendations on whether to buy or sell a particular security. So basically, the focus was on Nigerian capital markets, largely. So uh, I joined Vetiva Capital Management, uh, spent just about three months, and then I left again. So on the average, I've been spending, you know, short, short periods with, with the companies. So. And point you were certain that you're going to be an investment banker that's what you wanted to go on and do yeah so while i was in maritime i started the cfa program uh courtesy of uh, a senior colleague as well um niji hogumbayo uh he already he had done his own level one and you know there are certain people you look up to in life right and at that point Ni was one of those people i was looking up to as well he was my senior in school and he also joined Maristem after school. We had the same grade. He joined Maristem after school. And I was actually going to Maristem to replace him. When you said grade, you came out with the first class. Yeah, I came out with the first class. So this kind of investment bank normally go after top students. Yeah, so the strategy of Maristem then was actually to pick those first class students from those universities and, you know, throw them into research and, you know, start crunching the numbers coming up with reports and so on and so forth yeah so it was quite interesting so i was looking up to me then he had done his own level one cfa exam and my objective was okay my next challenge would be to actually write this exam and then there were just about i think less than 30 charter holders in the country at that point yeah less than 30 charter holders substantially less than 30 cfa holders cfa CFA charter financial analysts in nigeria in nigeria yeah so I, i started my cfa program in 2009 I did in June 2009, level one, so it's a three level. I did in 2009, 2010. So I did not do the 2011, which was level three. Then I was in Shell. And so you left the investment bank and went to Shell? Shell to do business economics. Yeah. So uh, in Shell, I did a professional exam that was oil and gas related. It is energy risk professional, uh, which was why I actually left at a gap in my CFA program. So after finalizing the ERP program, then 2012, I finalized my CFA program. Yeah. So you were in Shell for some time and yeah. you were doing business economics yeah. for Shell. And then you left Shell and started your own business. Yeah. So the investment management company started after my final CFA exam. Okay. So yeah. it was your CFA that's okay. After your CFA, so now I want to start my own investment, investment management firm. So, uh, and the idea of the investment management firm was actually to carry out investment management in the alternative asset space that cuts across both oil and gas, commodities, real estate, and so on and so forth. So it's actually like looking at a multi-sector approach to investment management. And because of the kind of experience we've had uh, working in different sectors. So when I say working in different sectors, as an investment analyst, you're actually covering a lot of sectors. You're covering companies in industrial goods, you're covering sectors in FMCG, you're covering banks. So you, you have 
early exposure to multiple sectors and how those business models work. So, and we're looking at opportunity to actually allow investors to have exposure to companies in all these sectors that are not listed. And that's why we call it the alternative asset class. So basically, is that supposed to be an investment strategy that we give people exposure to those asset class? Or is it supposed to provide better returns than the traditional conventional investment class? Okay, so there are two things, basically. Uh, the conventional asset class in Nigeria today, you have just equities and fixed income markets. Those markets are extremely small compared to the size of the economy. So, for example, um, the entire market capitalization of the Nigerian market is less than uh, $30 billion, right? So, it's about uh, $12 trillion there. And that's about less than $40 billion. Less than $40 less billion. Than $40 that's billion. the market cap of the, market. the Nigerian stock exchange. Stock exchange. No. So when you look at that size, that's extremely, extremely small. Standard Bank, for example, in South Africa is worth $20 billion in market cap. Right. And when you look at the size of the economy, which is about $450 billion. How did it come about the size of the economy to be $450 billion? I mean, GDP. The GDP. GDP is about. And the economic activity in Nigeria is worth about $450, $450 billion. billion. But the public market cap is just about 40 billion so you're looking at less than 10 percent penetration and south africa for example has close to 100 percent penetration is that right? because a lot of companies economic activities in nigeria are not going public now this is the reason that's one major factor but another major factor is most economic activities in nigeria are informal right say for example the agricultural sector the agricultural sector controls about 14 about 20 24 percent thereabouts of the entire gdp right but when you look at the entire agricultural sector you hardly find big companies in there Companies are operated at scale. Majority of the agricultural activities are actually operated by small-scale farmers. And these small-scale farmers are not investable platforms for high net worth individuals or for corporate investment opportunities. But you can say the same in the West, where, uh, especially in, in, in the UK, where I live, that most of the small farms, they are not public. And a lot of farms in the UK are not public. But majority, a lot of companies are also public. A lot of companies are also, also public. public. So a an lot average of the agricultural and economic activities are also public. Also like the distribution uh, processing companies are also public. public. So let me give uh, an example. When you look at the agricultural space in Nigeria, um, it's a big, it's a big sector, right? But how public is that sector today? On the exchange, you have just. Um, Okumu, Presco. By the time we count those two companies. And what do they do? What does Okumu and Presco do? They are primarily into palm production. And when you look at those exposures only, and you look at other agricultural value chain, you see they are not adequately represented on the exchange. And you have uh, farm produce, you have uh, crop production, you have livestock farming, and so on and so forth. All those agricultural activities are not in any way represented on the exchange. For example, um, you have big farms like Holams that are operating along the agricultural value chain, they are not represented on the exchange. Even the oil and gas sector that we talk about, it was just of recent that you have the likes of um, Mobile, Orlando, they are all listed, but only their downstream operations were listed, right? Orlando was trying to be a diversified operator, you know, combining downstream and upstream. But no major upstream operator was listed before, what was the name? I can't remember now. The immediate minister? No, I, I remember. Before that company was listed. So even the oil and gas sector, 
sector, the big players were not listed, are still not listed on the exchange. So uh, telecoms, no telecom company is listed. Last time a telecom company was listed was... Uh, well, uh, Globalcom? No, no, MTN? No, not MTN. What year was this? Uh, that was uh, 2008, 2009. Okay, I've left the country then. Then, okay. So uh, it was actually a fiasco. Because a lot of investors actually got their fingers burnt uh, when that company was when listed. that company was listed. So was it one of the top? Uh, no, no, no. It was actually focusing on landline. I, I remember Nitel. Uh, not Nitel. Oh, Nitel was a dead, <laughs> a dead company. Celtel. No, not Celtel. Yeah, I, I remember. So those sectors don't have exposures to the capital markets, and you, as an average investor, an investor on the streets, an average man on the streets should be able to have some exposure to those companies, right? But today, they don't. They don't have the opportunity to do that. And even if you have a big investor who is trying to have exposure to Nigerian investment opportunities, there are no credible platforms to actually have exposure to them when it comes to the secondary market opportunity because the market is very shallow, right? If you have a 30 billion naira market and the average daily transaction is just about 4 billion naira, that's actually very small compared to what an institutional investor would do. So overall, the summary is that the Nigerian capital market is still very shallow. A lot of companies need to be listed. A lot of companies need to be formalized. So they become quite investable and they provide liquidity options for investors to exit their investment opportunities, right? So that was the objective. That was the vision, you know, to formalize the informal sector and make them investable platforms for investors generally. But when you say formalizing for informal sector, you're talking about registered companies. Yeah. But it's just that they don't have liquidity options for investors who are in them. Correct. In, that is comparable to the public market. So they yeah. have investors, but they're not. You cannot just get your money out as quickly as you can. Some have investors, majority don't. They are just um, run by one-man business. i give an example. There was a company that was actually a major distributor for one of the fast-moving consumer brands in Nigeria. The company was actually doing a turnover of about a billion naira to 1.5 billion every month. So it was actually quite massive, operating within Southwest and the East, right? But the company was actually run by just one person. Even though, yeah, there are about 400 staff, but there was no corporate governance, for example. There was no institutional framework to ensure the company will continue to exist into the long term. And at the end of the day, when the FMCG brands, the principal brands realized they couldn't actually continue with that, they actually revoked the license and gave it out to a more structured company from the Middle East. So there are a lot of opportunities that actually, you know, eludes us as a country or as a people when we don't have the right institutional framework as companies to deliver on the mandate of some international brands. So that was your investment thesis, to be able to give investors opportunities to have access to those kind of investment. investment that are not accessible in the public market. So how did you go about doing that? Okay, so uh, we set up um, different subsidiaries that give us exposure to these sectors from real estate to oil and gas. So we started out a cultural business. So well. you started out the businesses yourself. Not that you're looking for entrepreneurs who are running those businesses and say, we're going to give you money like a private equity. No, no, it was We're going to build. So we're building. So we have a real estate business that is primarily run and is primarily into real estate opportunities. Where did you raise the money from? Yeah, so two forms. Um, some were principal investments from us and then we also had some form of syndicated investment notes that we issued to high net worth individuals, limited high net worth individuals who understand the kind of risk we're carrying and they also form part of that investment pool 
to execute those projects. So the major source of funding was our own primary funds and then syndicated notes. What's the size we're talking about here in terms of the investment or the money that was needed to start this? Uh, well, we started quite small then. Um, then we're controlling just about 20, 30 hem. 20 million, million naira. 30 million naira at that point. Uh, but it grew quite very fast because of the kind of operations we're running. And um, To what? Um, it grew to half a billion. Half a billion that you have under management to deploy to any opportunity that you think that you are doing. Okay, so you are into real estate, agriculture, what? Yeah, so we have a real estate opportunities, which is primarily into development of land, buildings, and we have some hostels here and there. And then we have a JV arrangement with a distribution company in Abuja, Aldo, uh, that is into bridging the supply gap between depot operators and most independent filling stations in Nigeria. So we call that at SAT at the JV. And then we have an FMCG exposure, uh, an FMCG company that is primarily into the distribution of FMCG brands. So the FMCG story was actually linked to the experience we had with that company that was doing about a billion, 1.6 billion every month. The result was um, there was a private equity firm who wanted to invest in that business. But the original owner of the business did not understand how the private equity firm would come in. Uh, she didn't want to leave control of the business she was getting old and we felt why not just um, get some money get some money you know relax and relax and let's other people run, hands run the business while you retire but she, she wasn't just listening we felt okay let's build our home and the business died afterwards yeah because they actually revoked the license and um, so so there are a lot of stories like that in the nigerian economic space where you have companies that are spent about 10 15 20 years out you know, sustainable structure to keep them going into the future. So we have all those. And one of the major products we're running then was the um, SATS commodity linked notes, or we call it a SATS um, short-term notes, wherein we allow investors to put in certain amount of money, largely high net worth individuals, and have exposure to higher returns, right? But of course, you understood what the risk we we're carrying was. So what we structured, the way we structured it was that we structure it with a floor return, for the investors so that they are quite comfortable with the kind of floor return they will get, but they actually have unlimited upside, right? So it was quite interesting because we paid out return every month for those investors, though it wasn't open to the public. It was just limited to private institutional investors and high net worth investors. And were you paying in form of dividend? We're paying, well, we can call it dividends, but we're paying actually returns. To them on monthly basis based on you're investing their money yeah and you're saying okay we're going to be giving you x amount every month every month and they know the real businesses you're working they know on. they know not yeah. some of this um this ponzi scheme that no 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 no, money no. In, no. so so for example know. the oil and gas business is actually a fast moving business in nigeria with a thin margin right but actually driven by volume so if you're able to make if you're able to match the volume every month and ensure you have very high turnover what do you mean volume so you let's break it down typical business all like as you're buying diesel and you're selling it or okay so um you can um okay yeah let's say um pms for example you buy pms and um the margin you have per liter might just be three naira on one forty naira. You buy and sell, so you, you buy about and the sell, right? You get so you actually the middleman, right? So when you look at three naira per liter, it doesn't make any sense. But when you multiply that by three thousand liters times, let's say thirty trucks in a month, for example, it starts to make sense. 
So, so is a, a volume business. So it, the person that has the most money will make a lot for we'll make a lot. So the liquidity of cash to be able to buy because there's always demand. There's always demand and because the demand is always there. And the supply is big as well. Supply is big, yeah. So it is you are limited by how much cash you have to operate. The how much cash you have to operate and how effective you are in turning over that cash. So in a month, you can actually turn it over like three or four times. If you're able to turn it over just once, the kind of return you get will be one third of the guy who turns it over three but times. But turning over is a factor of the supply and demand, is it not? Demand is always there. So, I mean, I buy 500,000 liters of of PMS. Um, how quickly I can turn over that is a factor of how quickly I can sell it. Right? Yeah, so there is always a demand network because it's a bar relationship as well. So you have network of demands, network of uh, filling stations who demand for your product. And the more you're able to deepen that relationship, the more volume you're able to pull every month. So the major function of the operator of that JV is to ensure we have enough network of filling stations that can actually demand the product because you're always aiming for the most volume Every month. Okay. Yeah. And also having access to that cash for a longer time. That's another factor. Another so, factor. so that the people that give you the money are not pulling it, pulling it after out. the first cycle. Well, exactly. So you can, the longer you hold the money and you're able to... You have more flexibility to, okay. to utilize it. So, so that's so, what you're doing, right? No, no. That, that was just one. And we have an individual who was managing that. So this was under the umbrella of the holding company. So we also have notes that were linked to real estate, for example. So we're creating different types of notes that were underpinned by different economic activities from real estate opportunities to oil and gas to fmcg so there are economic activities underlying those notes and those economic activities generate the returns we give to those notes so which is classic investment banking which but is actually in a non-public in a non-public settings exactly now the idea of carry wise came in when we have a lot of people asking how do i invest one thousand 2,000, 50,000. Then the minimum for SAT commodity linked note was about a million naira, right? Because it wasn't meant to be for large number of people. And how long were you holding the cash and, and how much were you guaranteeing? Uh, well, the minimum holding period was six months. So even though there are sometimes considerations for three months, two months, but then we realized that the behavior of the cash is so stable that when people start, you at least find them actually requesting that they should they will liquidate the cash, which is actually what most people don't realize with respect to how cash management works with banks. So an average bank in Nigeria, for example, has a deposit maturity of about three months, which means all their deposit has a maximum maturity of about three months. Majority of the deposit has an average majority of about three months. But they also give loan of one year, two years, five years. But the truth is, Technically, those deposits have three months maturity, but behaviorally, they have an infinite year of maturity because not everybody will actually withdraw the money at the same time. So after the maturity, people still roll it over, people still roll it over. So behaviorally, it's actually long-term liability, but on paper, it looks like, okay, it's a three-month maturity, which is actually the kind of behavior we experience when people actually put their money with us. So it's actually a trust thing. When people trust you, put in their money with you, with the expectation that you will not default, right? And at some point, you get scared when the money started growing, that work will actually grow. And right. you have to always think about opportunities that you can use it for. So um, at the end of the day, we felt the best way to actually scale that opportunity was actually to open it up to the public, but in a different kind of way. Because the public will not understand the kind of risk you're actually taking with the kind of commodity link notes we're doing. And so that was actually what gave back to CarryWise. So CarryWise was supposed to be a retail 
correct expression of what you are doing what you're doing high networking individuals who are doing uh, the link notes so tell me simply how it works and what you do with the money okay so the way carrywise works is it's um a digital saving platform that allows an average person to have exposure to a high yield without carrying any risk at all. So you can create your saving schedule and will save for you automatically based on the frequency you've chosen. It could be daily, it could be monthly, it could be weekly. The beauty is you look at it as savings, but the kind of return you get is actually investment type of return. So it's actually an hybrid opportunity that will feel an average person on the street should have exposure to. We couldn't do that without thinking of scale. And to think of scale, the best way to address the issue of scale is actually to leverage technology, right? And that was actually why we felt the best combination of opportunities from finance and technology can actually be the marriage of the two to bring the opportunity to the doorstep of an average person on the street. So what do you do with the money? Okay, so currently we have a partnership arrangement with uh, Meristem Trustees. So the money is actually going into risk-free instruments, government risk-free instruments at this moment. So you couldn't do it with what you do with the... No. So um, the idea is, as a fintech company, um, it's always difficult to find how you can fit adequately within the regulatory environment, which is why it is quite important that the regulatory bodies look at the best way to come up with a framework that can you know, provide that regulatory environment for fintech to actually thrive very well. The current regulatory framework was not developed for fintech environments. So many things have changed and the regulators need to rethink the current regulatory framework to ensure that the average person on the street, the society at large, actually benefits from the full potential of what global trends have brought to us free of charge. So we brought in Meristem trustee as a check to bring about balance and trust that your savings are actually going into risk-free instruments that does not carry any risk at all. So there are a lot of interest. The paradox in the financial service industry in Nigeria is um, an average person sees it as complex, but those complexities are actually being explored by high net worth individuals. So for example, um, government treasuries is risk-free and Nigerian governments issued Naira treasuries, uh, they issued Naira bonds, they also issued Euro bonds, but I'm specifically focusing on Naira bonds and Naira treasuries. Those Naira treasuries issued by the Nigerian government are actually higher grade investment opportunities than having your money in the bank, right? So if you are to look, if you are to focus on the logic of finance, a very high grade investment opportunity should actually give you lower return. But in Nigeria's situation, the opposite is the case. What you get by fixing your money with banks is actually lower than what you get by lending your money to the Nigerian government. But of course, you know, the Nigerian government can't default when it comes to Naira notes. They can probably default when it comes to dollar treasuries or dollar debt. But when it comes to Naira debt, the worst that can happen is for them to actually print more Naira and pay you back, right? So that should have lower... It should, but that's a paradox that actually exists in the Nigerian financial service industry. And that paradox has been there for so long, right? So the idea we are trying to implement right now is actually to change the narrative by allowing an average person on the streets to actually gain exposure to those kind of higher returns without necessarily carrying risk. But isn't that an existential uh, risk to your business if that paradox changes and it becomes normalized? Okay. So um, at this point, there are two major values we render. The first is 
to allow people to save easily, which is actually at the core of what CareWise stands for. Uh, let people save without them thinking about it. Let saving become a lifestyle. Automate your saving. Just live your normal life and then save. And the greatest return you can actually get from your saving is your savings. Is the money you didn't spend. So if you're saving 10,000 naira every month, for example, in a year is 120,000. You could have spent 120,000, but you see I have the 120,000 naira left, right? So at the end of the day, what we are giving in terms of returns is just in addition to the opportunity to allow people to save easily, right? So uh, currently, NPR is the monetary policy uh, rates. And what banks are expected to give in terms of returns is actually linked to that NPR. So for example, it is a 30% of NPR. So NPR is about 14%. So 30% of NPR is 4.2, which means banks are expected to give an average saving account holder about 4.2%. So if NPR goes down to 10% today, banks will be expected to give just 3%. So at that point, we will also be looking at how we can allow an average person to have exposure to the prevailing interest rate environment. So if interest rate environment is very high, let an average person have exposure to that high rate. If interest rate environment is low, let him have exposure to that low interest rate environment. So it is not an existential issue for us because the paradox, even though it usually exists, it is always possible to actually give an average person a return that is higher than what the average cost of deposit to banks are. So for example, uh, savings account get about 4.2%, right? And the way people use savings account these days is actually different from the original intention of savings accounts because so many things have changed. So for example, you can actually access your savings accounts today from anywhere using uh, ATM cards or even from your phone directly. In the past, it wasn't the case. You can only access your uh, your current account by issuing checks, right? Your savings accounts, you have to go to the bank. But technology has changed that game. So what savings accounts used to be is no longer what it is today. So what we're doing is actually to redefine that savings account and make it retain its former glory by making people save for a particular purpose. So there are a lot of people who have money in the bank, for example, and they don't actually have that opportunity or platform that allows them to categorize what they are saving for. So, you know, it's quite intuitive when you have a platform that allows you to uh, save towards for example, having a vacation or save towards building a house or save towards buying a car or save towards, you know, um, other financial goals that matters to you in life, right? That platform we provide and it's one of those things that CarryWise provides. So the return is an icing on the cake. The opportunity to save at ease with your life, you know, being at ease with yourself and then save cumulatively is actually the major value proposition. So the return is just an icing on the cake for us. Yeah. But you provide more returns than normal banks. So that is also a big advantage. Yes, we provide more returns than normal bank. And the reason for that is very simple. There are so many things within the current financial services that an average person on the street does not like uh but of course we are left with no option so um if i have a savings account for example the least i will expect is that that savings account should actually have the same amount i put in it it shouldn't go below that if i don't withdraw of course but you know it is actually possible to actually put hundred thousand in a savings account and then have an amount lower than that over time right so for example if you withdraw three times from your savings account in a month you actually forfeit whatever interest you expected to get from that account and the whole idea so of penalty penal the whole idea of penalty charges uh we think those things need to be refined uh people by nature don't like to be punished why not create a business model that already takes those operating costs 
as part of your business model, why you ensure that an average person doesn't have the impression of being charged. So on your platform, people can withdraw immediately. They can, yeah. So they only get interest for the maturity of their money. So the way we operate is um, when you save on carry-wise, you get return on daily basis. So, for example, let's say your return is 10% per annum. So what accrues to you on daily basis is 10% of 365 of so whatever pro-rata, balance you get. Pro-rata. Um, pro-rata, correct. So how big is your platform at the moment? Uh, okay. Um, How many people are using the service? So we started CowryWise last year. Development started last year. And uh, unfortunately, we couldn't launch publicly because we had to sort out two important things. First, we have to ensure the platform is stable. And second, we have to ensure we have the right regulatory license to operate. So we started out beta testing around January, inviting friends on private basis to join the platform and to test it out. We got feedbacks, incorporate those features into it. And we're able to finalize the licensing structure around June, July, and finalize the agreement with Maristam around July as well, which is actually what's um, informed the earlier statement I made that um, there is need for regulation to move quite quickly when it comes to the regulation of fintech companies in Nigeria. Because the usage and the use case of financial services is changing. It's changing. And so there is need for regulation to be in the forefront of that. Otherwise, the issue of trust might actually be at the detriment of the financial service industry because the trend in tech is not something you can go against. It has come to stay. So we need to embrace it and we need to put regulation around that. I really want to ask a few questions about uh, your team and other stuff. So And then we can round off in the next maybe five minutes or so. Okay, so you started building last year. How many people are in this the founding team of this? Is this part of your previous investment firm, or is this something totally different? Yeah, uh, there is a link between Sad Partners and Carrywise. And on Carrywise, we have uh, three members, two co-founders, and then we have a product. Um, myself and Edward Pupola. Edward Pupola is a CTO, while I'm the CEO of the company. And you are still part of Sad Partners? Yeah, I'm a director in Sad Partners. So Sad Partners invested in this, or it's just a subsidiary of Sad Partners? Sad Partners an investment. So have you raised money from external investors? Uh, no. So you've been funding this yourself? Yes. From Sad Partners? Sad Partners and the other co-founder. So you're operating like a normal startup that will be looking for investment as well? Sure. Are you looking at raising money? Definitely we're looking at raising money. Um, We have a limit to how far we can go bootstrapping. And the most important thing for us is actually first to establish that market validation and to ensure we have a lot of people using the product. How many people are using it at the moment? Since we launched in July, late July, uh, we've been growing the user base by about 20% every week. So uh, relatively, the reception has been quite good. And it is quite encouraging. So, yes, we'll be looking at raising investments anytime soon. And this will be from from um, external investors like foreign investors or local investors? Yeah, we're already in talk with quite a few, right? And um, we're just trying to finalize the deal to make sure everybody is happy. So, let's talk about um, how it works Um in terms of the team now, so you have a CTO, you have the product designer and yourself. Those are the only three people. No, we have other stakeholders who help. But how do you get users? Okay, so currently we have a lot of activities going on online and then we have some offline engagements. So our user acquisition is primarily twofold, online and then offline. Yeah. So I'm going to be ending this uh, this podcast with a series of fire rounds. So I'm going to be asking a few questions around that. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, what is your biggest business pain point at the moment for CowryWise? Trust. Trust. Yeah. There are so many things in the financial service industry due to the first thing I mentioned, 
around regulation, a lot of people still don't trust that you can actually carry out financial service online without having physical presence and across the country. And it's not a bank. And that is not a bank. So Carvice is not a bank, right? I think I need to let that clear. We're not a bank. And so that trust element is quite important. A lot of people still don't trust. There are few people who understand what we can do, what online platform can actually provide the convenience the opportunities and so on but to majority it is still a very risky venture for them so trust is quite important but again we do not expect that we'll gain trust from day one so we don't have that expectations we believe trust is something we should hand and we will hand it so it's a function of making sure we live to our promises and we deliver the value and are you educating the market in yeah. order to build that trust? Yeah, correct. So um, what I do most of the time is actually to talk to clients and let them understand the kind of value we're proposing and the kind of value we are out to deliver and how CarryWise works generally. What is the average ticket or average um, money that people invest in your platform? Uh, average right now is about um, about 40000 So how do you make money? Okay, so um, the business model is quite very simple. We get savings. We invest the seven risk free instruments. We get X return. And then we give savers X minus Y. So we retain Y. And what is that in terms of numbers? So, for example, treasury bill instruments have returns range from 13 to 18%. Okay. Right? Depending on whether you're doing 90 days, 180 days, or 364 days. And we give an average savers about 10% okay. of that. So, if we get 13%, we give an average saver 10%. So, we get, so we get retain 3%. 3%. So, that's how you make That's it. how we make a spread. So, the whole idea is an average saver can actually get 10%, no matter how much you save. It could be 10 naira. It could be 100. Minimum is 100 naira. It could be 100 naira. It could be 1,000, which is actually against the norm in finance that if you have higher volume, you should have higher interest. But we are, you know, making sure that an average person doesn't necessarily have to have 1 million or 2 million before they can actually have exposure. You're almost disrupting Isusu. Ah, well. Because if you can allow people to save 100 naira, that's, you're playing in the level of Isusu. So we're playing in the level of an average man on the street. And we just want them to have exposure. When you look at Isusu, there could be some pain points, you know, reminding Mr. A that he needs to contribute his own quota and reminding Mr. B that he needs to Which technology can do anyway. Technology can, can do that. Can to do that. What is your number one growth metric? User base and asset under management. Which book are you reading at the moment? Oh. By Neil Heyer. Correct. <laughs> That's a fantastic book, by the way. Awesome, awesome. Um... Which business is getting you excited? I think my business. No, you're not allowed that. You can. You have to think in the ecosystem, in the tech ecosystem, in Nigeria or Africa generally. Which business is getting you excited? Uh, okay. If I have to choose, I think I will say the new payment infrastructure. Which one? Uh, I'll say uh, Paystack and Flutterwave. Flutterwave, they, yeah. the because they actually enable what we're doing. So uh, they open gates and they enable a lot of other financial services to be structured in the platform. So I think they're a great idea. They're quite exciting. Razak, I knew this is going to be an exciting time and I'm sure a lot of people will find your story really great and that what you're doing really exciting. I'm very sure I'm going to have you back on this show um, to talk more about what you're doing and how that is impacting lots of lives. Thank you very much for coming to Build in the Future. Thank you so much for having me. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng.
One of the things we do at Starter is growth consulting. We work with select number of growth stage startups and established companies to grow and retain their customers. We do growth. We're not a digital marketing agency. Instead, we help our clients figure out their customer acquisition and retention by focusing on three major things. We help them build a consistent narrative and community around their core offers. Second, we help them build a scalable, repeatable, and cost-effective growth systems and strategies. And lastly, most importantly, we help them build an in-house team that we execute the strategies for them. We've worked with and still working with companies like Flutterwave, Cranium One, DIY Law, Omar Gardens, JEE Client Services, Amara Suit, and many others. We're a small team of startup entrepreneurs, investors, product designers, and growth marketers with experiences of building and scaling our own products and companies. To work with you, we'll have to determine if there's a fit and if we can significantly make a difference to your growth trajectory within a short time. If your business is currently making money, at least $10,000 per month, and you want to scale to the next level, let's have a chat. Go to wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us. That is w-e-d-o-g-r-o-w-t-h-dot-c-o. Wedogrowth.co and book a free strategy session with us today. Do you have an offer, a product, service, or message that will be ideal for entrepreneurs, investors, or corporate executives across Africa? Building the Future podcast can help you. This podcast has been sponsored by partners who want to reach super-targeted audience of investors, entrepreneurs, and people who are in the process of starting their own business. If you or your company is interested in reaching those audiences, through this podcast, we would like to chat with you. We have sponsorship slots from three episodes up to one year. Send me an email via hello at the starter.com. That is H-E-L-L-O at T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A dot com. And we can take this further. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you. And it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A.com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.